Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. If I was to challenge a friend to nominate the most important year in English history, the chances are that they would choose 1066. This is the year of invasions and battles that decided the course our history would go on to take. It's also something of a surprise that, until now, none of our guests have chosen 1066 for their travels through time. Well, today we're going to rectify this. Here's me talking to Don Holway, the author of the compelling new book, The Last Viking, the true story of King Harold Hardrada. His is a rich subject and one that I didn't know half as well as I thought I did. Here we are talking the other day as we set off for a year almost a millennium ago. As ever, for more about the history we cover in this episode, please do head to our website at tttpodcast.com. First off, Don Holway, a really warm welcome to you in Pennsylvania, I believe, and thank you for joining us today on Travels Through Time. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Right. You've written this brilliantly engaging book, which I'm going to hold up here um, for people to look at if they're watching it on YouTube. It's called The Last Viking, The True Story of King Harold Hardrana. It's absolutely crammed full of the most engaging plot. Um, We're going to talk about it in a moment. But before we get to Harold Hardrada, I thought I'd ask you a bit about yourself to uh, to begin with, because I know that you're a magazine journalist of many years standing. You've written for tons of titles in the States, but something else in your biography really stuck out when I was reading about you. And I wanted to ask about it because you're a reenactor as well. You you actually <laughs> involve yourself in the reenactment of history. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and about reenactment, please? Yes, I've been a reenactor for a couple of years now. My primary interest is not the Viking Age. I've done a couple of Viking events, and I have some Viking sets of armor. If um, if I'm on YouTube, you can see a couple of them in the background. But my primary area of interest is the 17th century, which is, um, you know, English civil wars uh, over in Germany. It was the Thirty Years' War. I've always just found that to be a fascinating century. I mean, you've on one hand, you've got tremendous works of art. I mean, Bernini, the sculptures, and you you think of Louis XIV and the gilded cherubs in Versailles and everything. And then at the same time, you have got the most savage religious wars going on, just exterminations of populations. Uh, Germany has said some areas lost half of its population over the course of 30 years. And I've always just found that completely fascinating. How can you, how can you have that kind of civilization on one end and that kind of savagery on the other end. And uh, so I ran into a group called the Twisted Knot Company of Pike and Shot. Shout out to my peeps there (laughs) and uh, joined up with them a couple of years ago. We we do all sorts of uh, reenacting anything from Elizabethan times up to English Civil Wars. I personally play a pikeman, which is a guy who uses a uh, 16, 18 foot spear that you don't you don't throw it. You use it to hold off enemy horsemen. And it's uh, it's you can call us a bunch of history nerds, but <laughs> but we're all 
We're all dead set on knowing everything we can about the subject. We challenge each other all the time. If somebody comes up and says this, somebody else will say, prove it. And you have to, you have to be able to say that you're not just making stuff up with this. It's very, it's very uh, entertaining and interesting. And it just adds an extra layer to history, doesn't it? I suppose because when you come to the writing, you can know these details in the abstract. I might know because I'm in the British Library or something reading about mm -hmm. it, but it's kind of different if you've held the weapon yourself and you've been in that formation yourself. And we're going to get to Harold Hardrider in a moment, but that's um, it's really useful, isn't it, for that immersion? I think so. I mean, I've I've read some historians that say that's not the real thing. You know, you're 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 play acting during the day and then you're, you know, camping out at night. And that's that's basically all there is as far as they're concerned. But to me, I mean, I've I've worn the armor, you know, marched around with it. I've learned the military maneuvers. And uh, yeah, I've gotten drunk with my mates around campfires at night, but that was part of the experience too. And I've been a, a, a fencer, a classical fencer with uh, rapier swords, like three musketeer kind of swords for oh, years now. And I think that gives me a perspective on something of the life that was going on back then as well. I, you know, I, I have the equipment, I've worn the equipment, I know what it is to sweat in the armor and have a backache from wearing armor all day. And <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's something you don't learn from, as I always say, the last Viking wasn't written behind a desk. I went out and tried to live it a little bit. Yeah. How do you find the general public reacts to you? Do they come and watch these reenactments or are they um, confined away from the public? How, how's oh, it no, no, no. They, we encourage them to come up and interact. That's that's the greatest part. Otherwise, it's all of us telling the same stories to each other the whole yeah. time. But when you get somebody, you go to an event, you have uh, the general public coming up and asking, what's this? What's this? What's this? And you get to explain it to them. And a lot of people have no conception of the history. When I put on the armor, my my ancestry is, you pronounce it bath or bath? We pronounce it bath. I think you pronounce it bath. It depends if you're posh or if you're not posh or if you're from the north or the south. <laughs> I'm, 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 well, I'm fr my ancestry is from over there in Somerset. So every okay, time okay. I put the armor on or put mm. the garb on, I feel my ancestors, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I feel them looking over my shoulder. Well, brilliant. And hopefully that'll help you to explain things to our listeners as well as we go through today. Um, we're going to be talking about The Last Viking, the book. And just a quick word on the Vikings in general before we get to one in specific. What is it about them that attracts us so much? It seems that they uh, they have a real place in the imagination. They have a claim on our on our mind. What is it about the Vikings? You know, you can you can get into hot water overanalyzing <laughs> the Vikings, but I think a lot of people are, you know, tired of. I wouldn't I wouldn't say tired of city life. I mean, there's plenty of advantages to city <laughs> life, but the Vikings were their own men. I mean, they they took orders from a king, but they didn't. If they really didn't want to, they didn't take orders from a king. I mean, they basically came out of the north up there, things were tough times, and they basically took the world and shook it by the scruff of the neck until they got what they wanted out of it. And I think a lot of people admire that, even if they don't admit it. I think a lot of people admire that. Mm. Now, you've called Harold Hardrada the Vikings Viking, which is um, a nice description. <laughs> but also, I mean, it, we Harold III is one way you could um, introduce him. He's alternatively known as the Burner of Bulgars, the Hammer of Denmark, the Thunderbolt of the North, or 
as everybody in Britain knows, Harold Hardrada, because we all learn this story of 1066 in a kind of hologrammatic way at school when we were about 12 and we talk about mm-hmm. about Harold Hardrada. But when I when I started reading the book, I realised so he was someone I thought I knew a bit about, but I realised I knew absolutely nothing at all. So mm-hmm. in your own words, could you um, introduce him to our listeners, please? Who was Harold Hardrada? Well, when I say he was the Vikings Viking, uh, he lived a life that most Vikings could only aspire to. I mean, most Vikings were farmers a lot of the time who picked up a sword a couple of times a year and went raiding to get whatever they didn't need. But but Harold was, well, he was born a prince, a minor prince, and at the Battle of Stiklestad in 1030, he was supporting his uh, elder brother Olaf, King Olaf of Norway, in a battle. Didn't go the way they wanted it to go. The battle was notable because it was fought partially under a, a, a total eclipse of the sun. So it went completely black in the middle of the day. And you can imagine that the, the Christians on one side would have thought, oh, man, this is like the day that Jesus died. And the, and the Vikings would have looked up and seen that ring of fire in the sky and thought of one-eyed Odin looking down on them. So it was, you know, a momentous event for both of them. But as I say, it didn't turn out the way the Vikings wanted. Olaf was killed and Harold had to escape and go into exile as a uh, as a mercenary in Russia. He had relatives in Russia, so that's where he went. And from there, he journeyed basically all over the medieval world. I mean, he went down to Constantinople and joined the Varangian Guard, which was the elite bodyguard for the uh, Byzantine emperors down there, and fought for several years in their army against the Saracens. This was... Uh, this was a couple of decades before the First Crusade, but the Saracens and the Christians were already at war on and off. Uh, Harold fought against them in the Holy Land. He went to Sicily. He fought them there. There was a rebellion with the Norman mercenaries in the army, and Harold fought them in Italy, basically just all over the medieval world. Finally, went back to uh, Russia and married the uh, the Grand Prince's daughter, the Princess uh, Elizaveta took her as his wife and went back home to win his empire. And um, just when I, f- I'm like you, when I first heard of him, I was probably about that same age, like 12. And I thought, wow, what <laughs> this is, this is, this is the thing that you think about when you think about Vikings, this guy doing this. And that years later, when my agent said, uh, Hey, you know, uh, Vikings are hot right now because of the TV. Do you know any Vikings that we could write about? And I was like, no, <laughs> let me one. tell you a story. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I mean, and even and it just kind of went from there. It just so cosmopolitan because I suppose that's the big thing that I learned from your book is that I had almost a, an idea that he might be quite parochial because he came down from Norway and battles in Yorkshire, modern day Yorkshire. It, it felt quite confined, and then you realise that actually that isn't the story at all. It's the complete opposite. And he's even today when we read about um, you, you know what what Putin's planning for the next stage of the war in Ukraine. You think well, Harold Hardrada was over there in Kiev, and the and the one mm-hmm. um, the one likeness of his wife who you mentioned there is actually in Kiev mm-hmm. today under threat of destruction due to Russia's armies, it is, and yeah. um, so that yeah. kind of gives an idea that the not just the continuing legacy, you know, the, the territory, the book covers, but just what a picaresque journey his was, and it would. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it'd be a a wonderful thing to kind of go to any of these places. We could have talked about all sorts of different moments in his life. We're going to get to the ones that we are talking about in a moment. But 
talk about his personality just for one more moment, because when you say he was the Vikings Viking, he was an absolute monarch, wasn't he? The, the hard rider, the hard ruler that that came a little bit later on, but it was very true to true to him, wasn't it? It was very true. I mean, I I saw a real uh, character arc in his story where he started out, as I said, as basically a, a teenager wounded in battle and exiled, no home. His family basically was all dead and he fought his way up the ladder, uh, achieved everything that he wanted by his sword hand and learned along the way that, you know, that got things done and to show no mercy when when he had to. And when he came back to Norway, um, he basically he was so rich at that point as a mercenary fighter that he basically bought half of Norway from the king, his nephew Magnus. Uh, but uh, when Magnus passed away a couple years after that, at that point, Harold was uh, uh, he was he was greedy. I mean, there was no two ways about that. And he fought a basically 15, 16 year war with Denmark, uh, just back and forth. Well, from Norway to Denmark, it would be up and down. <laughs> they fought back and forth and never really accomplished anything. And he just learned through all that, that looting was the way to, uh, you know, to maintain his wealth and his status. And uh, when his civil, when his war with Denmark basically ended up as a draw, he resorted to taking the, the taxes from his own people and really became a tyrant. I mean, he was not a good guy at the end. Mm. Let's talk about sources just for a moment, because I think people will be very interested to know how on earth you went about recreating this story from a thousand years ago. One thing I should point out, because um, some people might have read the book, others will be reading the book shortly after this, hopefully. Um, but mm -hmm. what? Um, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. You can see the magazine writer in you in the narrative because it's full of pace, it's full of description, and there are periods of just pure dialogue in there. Now, people will be wondering how on earth did he recreate these dramatic moments which are I did not recreate us yeah i did not recreate a single word of that dialogue that dialogue is in the original sources if uh if it's in the book in quotes it was in the sources in quotes now i took a lot of it and updated the language a lot of it was uh you know a lot of it was from medieval well all of it's from medieval sources but the translations a lot of them were done in victorian times and those guys never use five words when 10 words will do. So you got to like pair the writing back a little bit, but all the original sources uh, use the quotes. Now, a lot of those were writing after the fact. So are those quotes accurate? I stayed in the book that, you know, none of these guys who were writing were there when it happened. You have the, the famous conversation at Stamford Bridge between King Harold and his brother. Uh, that was that was recounted verbatim by, uh, I think it was three or four different ancient authors. Not a single one of them was there. They all recorded a little bit differently. And I tell, I say that in the book. I mean, this is, you know, I'm not making this up, but this is, you know, there's a little uncertainty in this. But if you put all the sources together, I like to envision it as uh, I'm sitting in a room with all the original chroniclers and they're telling me the story. They come in when their parts, you know, when they've written their parts, they tell me the story and I'm I'm just writing it down. That's all. I'm yeah, doing. exactly. It's um, it actually makes for a really dramatic, high velocity piece of writing. I want to ask you about one of the chroniclers in particular, Snorri, who's someone you come back to. I mean, he's right. there at the beginning, but... 
He's right throughout, and he seems such an interesting source that um, people who are interested in history might want to hear a bit more about him um, from someone who's worked so closely with him as a source. Right. He's he's actually my main source, uh, Snorri Sturluson. He was an Icelandic writer, again, about 200 years after the fact. But he did, what I did was collect all the all the possible sources that he had in Western Iceland at the time and put them all together. Now, there were some other ones that, that I used, but I almost, uh, I take the perspective of Snorri when I was writing the book. My first scene is Snorri collecting his sources as I did and sitting down in his writing studio in Iceland to write this, this account of Harold Hadrada. And uh, that's basically what I did. So I, I'm almost taking the perspective of Snorri retelling the story. Now, I don't do it all from his perspective, but I'm sort of stepping into his shoes when I when I wrote The Last mm, Viking. I can imagine you felt a bit of uh, kinship with Snorri then doing the same, essentially, as him <laughs> all these years on. Um, last question before we, we dive in. I just wanted to ask a bit about religion, because one thing that's really striking about the pe- period is the ascendance of Christianity is this huge force in in society. I was always taught at school that the, the Vikings were pagans. Is that true? By this time, most of them were not. Uh, Christianity had really taken over. Uh, uh, Harold was Christian. Most of the Vikings were, were Christian by this point. So as I say, even at Stiklestad, you had pagans, but uh, King Olaf made them all uh, become Christian uh, before he took them into the army. So it was absolutely uh, Christians at this time. See, we're still getting the propaganda all these years later. They were they were on in, in the form. Okay. I'm not going there, buddy. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's, um, let's get into the format. So it always begins with me asking a question of you. Let's see where we go. So if you could travel back in time, Don Holloway, to any calendar year in the past, which year would you like to go and visit? Uh, when I got the invitation to come on your show, I was like, Here's the religious part. Please, please, please don't let anybody have done 1066 yet. That's the that's absolutely the 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 year. I, I'm amazed that nobody has jumped on that already. How have we <laughs> missed it out? We've done so many years, but we've not done probably this. I don't know. It's, it's almost like an immortal year, isn't it? 1066. It is. I mean, it's a it's a, a turning point in in English history. I mean, uh, everything changed, and now that you know half the half the world speaks english mm. and we wouldn't speak our form of english if not for 1066 and the Norman conquest i mean english just the very english language changed because of that year okay yeah, I mean, you describe it in the book as well as the year when this great decision was made of whether it was going to be a Viking country or whether it was going to be an Anglo-Saxon one or it turned out to be something else entirely right. in the end. But um, let's go back to um, uh, to the beginning of 1066 and just let's paint the political dynamic, maybe, um, which right. which is the platform on which all this subsequent history happens. What's going on in early 1066, which we should tell people about? Well, uh, early in right, early in January, King Edward the Confessor dies. He's in his 60s at that point, and he's the one who really set up the whole situation. He was uh, he was half Norman. His mother was a Norman Duchess and then Queen of England, and he was half Norman himself. Felt he had lived in exile for many years, decades in Normandy, probably felt himself to be more Norman than English by the time he came back and took over the, uh, accepted the crown. So he was uh, childless, 
He had uh, married the daughter of uh, one of the great English earls, uh, Earl Godwin, who was who would be Harold Godwinson's father. But they never had children. Nobody knows why that is, if uh, one of them was um, infertile or if uh, there was some sort of angst between uh, King Edward and Earl Godwin. Nobody knows why that is. But uh, the kingdom needed an heir, and it depends on who you listen to, who to who's telling the story. The Normans claim that uh, their duke, Duke William, who was Edward's cousin, one of his cousins, came over to England in the 1050s and uh, was promised the kingdom by King Edward. Said, if I, you know, if I die childless, I want you to have the kingdom. None of the English sources record that story, and it was not uh, certainly wasn't publicized. But that was uh, Duke William's claim to the throne. Now, when it gets to January of 1066, this is many years after the uh, promise that Edward supposedly made. Uh, Edward on his deathbed goes to Harold Godwinson, the son of Earl Godwin, and now an earl in his own right, uh, the most powerful man in England, already called uh, Sub Regulus, the Underking, and Duke Sanglorum, the, the Duke of the English. He's, the, he's probably even more powerful than Edward himself at this point. And Edward, uh, with his dying breath, basically, if you listen to the English sources, tells Harold, the kingdom is yours. Now, that is not totally up to Harold because England has a proto-democracy of the Witan, the, the uh, sort of a proto-parliament, if you will, the leading lords. Uh, nothing gets done without their approval. And yet they're unanimous in, uh, in naming, agreeing that Harold should be the king. They don't want a Norman, a Norman king to come over, so they make Harold king. Well, immediately when Duke William hears about this, he says, well, you know, Edward promised me the kingdom. Are you, uh, you know, are you going to renege on that? And a couple of years earlier, the crux of the matter is that Harold was in Normandy for uh, basically a summer. He was, he either landed or was shipwrecked on the coast and he ended up in William's hands. And uh, William kind of took the measure of him. Uh, I think they respected each other. They went on a war together against Brittany, and uh, Harold really showed himself to be a hero. Basically, pulled a couple of William's men out of quicksand at uh, uh, in Brittany, and I think they respected each other. But William knew that he had Harold over a barrel at this point. He, uh, you know, Harold was basically his captive if uh, William wanted it that way. And William, at that point, said to Harold. You know, I've been promised the kingdom. Are you going to adhere to that? And he made Harold swear on holy relics that uh, he would give the kingdom to William when the time came. Well, when the time came, Harold did not do that. Harold reneged on his promise and did not give uh, William, you know, did not give William the kingdom. So as soon as William heard about this, he was like, I, you know, I'm a Duke of Normandy. I cannot. I could not see to be seem to be insulted in this manner in front of my men. If uh, if I take this insult, they're going to think I'm weak. I, I'm basically going to have to go do what uh, nobody's done since the Vikings decades earlier, and that is go conquer England. And he spent all summer putting together a fleet. The Normans, although they were descendants of Vikings, 
uh, were not great sailors. William's father, Robert, had actually assembled a fleet uh, a couple of decades before, and they got blown off course and uh, just couldn't even make the crossing. So this was no minor undertaking that William was going to do. He was, uh, a lot of his uh, his men, his, uh, his barons, a lot of them objected to it and said, you know, Normandy is this little piece over here of the continent, and England is this huge country. They have great soldiers. Uh, and we're, we're, are you sure you want to do this? And uh, William was like, we're absolutely going to do this. And he spent all summer getting ready to uh, invade England. And Harold, knowing he was coming, spent all summer on the southern coast on the lookout for a Norman fleet. Mm, so, so that's the dynamic in the south. And we should say, is it right to think of England at this point as um, being the having these four kingdoms of Wessex, Mercia, Northumbria, and East Anglia, and being comprised of those, and the, the or is it more complicated by this point? Uh, they're not separate kingdoms anymore. They're all earldoms within the kingdoms, and there are, there are more of them than that. But it's been a united country for uh, decades. Uh, uh, the, the Vikings had come over uh, in the previous decades and had actually conquered all of England and united it all. Uh, so it's one piece at this point. I mean, you have different earldoms like uh, different uh, counties or different states, uh, but they're all under one ruler. So it's all one piece. And you've got point. up in the north, this is where things begin to get more troublesome and more complicated because you have is it Torstig and you have Northumbria? Do you want to tell us about that dynamic? And this right. is where Harold right. comes in, Harold Hardrado. Right. Torstig was uh, King Harold's brother. We have two Harolds in the story. We have Harold Godwinson, the King of England, and we have Harold Harald Hardrada, uh, who is the King of Norway. So we have to be careful to keep that straight for your listeners. But in England, King Harold had a brother, Tostig Godwinson, uh, who was a fellow Earl. He was Harold's younger brother. He was a favorite of King Edward when uh, King Edward was alive. Uh, Edward made him uh, Earl of Northumbria because he wanted a southern Earl. The uh, the Godwinsons were, were from down in Wessex. And when the northern Earl Seward died, Edward sent Tostig up north because he wanted a southern uh, Earl in charge of that kingdom up there because the Northumbrians had been under Viking control uh, back when that was part of the Dane law, when the Danes came over and they were still Viking sympathizers, you know, Scandinavian in their outlook. Um, it was capable of a lot of trouble up there. So uh, Edward sent Tostig up to keep a hold of it. But Tostig was pretty heavy handed in the way he did it. Uh, he was not liked. Uh, in fact, he was hated. And at some point when he was down in the south on a hunting trip with King Edward, the Northumbrians rebelled and said, we don't want him anymore. They elected their own uh, Northern Earl. So as uh, uh, Harold is not yet king at this point, he's still the most powerful Earl. And Edward sends him north to straighten this situation out. Well, Harold gets up north and he finds out that basically the Northerners are right. Tostig's a lousy Earl and he's not doing a good job. When they present their demands that they want him out, they want him exiled, Harold says, Okay, we'll do that. We'll we'll exile my brother, and uh, to seal the peace, I'll I'll even marry your sister. There was two brothers up there, uh, Morkir in Northumbria and Edwin in Mercia, and they were both part of this rebellion. So Harold married their sister and exiled his brother. So by the time of the death of uh, King Edward in 1066, Tostig is already in exile, but he's plotting a return. 
He's shopping himself around, see if he can find uh, troops to back him up. He goes to his uh, wife's family in Flanders, and they don't want anything to do with it. He goes to Normandy, and William is like, well, I'm already planning my own invasion here. I don't need your help. I don't, I've already had one Godwinson betray me. I don't need to have another one on my fighting force. So uh, Tostig goes north. He checks out uh, Scotland. Scotland doesn't back him up. Finally goes to Norway where King Harold Hadrada has been fighting uh, King Svein of Denmark for 15, 16 years and gotten nowhere. And he is thinking he's, his goal at that point is to reunite the North Sea Empire, old King Knut. Uh, back earlier in the century, you had Norway, Denmark, and England, all part of, the, of a North Sea Empire, which fell apart when Knut died. But Harold is thinking, I really want I, I can set that back up again. I can be the emperor of the north. I failed in Denmark, but I think I can do it in England because Tostig tells him Harold and his army are way down in the south. They're waiting for uh, Duke William to come across the channel. The whole north is wide open. We can just go take it. So, I mean, you've set that up so well in um, in a very short span of time. So well done for doing that. But what what kind of size <laughs> is the um, is the fleet or army, I'm not sure which is the best term to use, that, that Harold brings across to Northumberland. Which Harold? Yeah, hard, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, Harold Hardrada. <laughs> now, you get different uh, different estimates of the, war, of the power of the fleet. Most of them say 300 ships, uh, but you get anywhere from 9,000 men up to 18,000 mm. men. I mean, it was a not inconsequential army that he brought. I mean, it was it was it was a bigger army than uh, Newt had t- brought uh, to conquer England himself and, and take it for himself. So the Vikings had a very good chance of uh, pulling this off. Hello there. It's time for a word about our sponsors. Ace Cultural Tours. As the days get longer and you start to think about plans for the year ahead, it's a great time to pick up one of their catalogues to see what 2023 might hold for you. In March, for instance, they have a tour called Venice, the triumph of light and colour, led by the art historian Tom Abbott, which sweeps through the palazzi, galleries and churches of the great city of Canals. In June, you could head off to the untamed landscape of classical Greece with the archaeological historian Andrew Wilson. There, you could explore Byzantine churches, sanctuaries and monasteries. Or how about a trip to investigate the history of the Teutonic Knights at Malbork in Poland? That tour sets off at the end of August. I mentioned just three of Ace's cultural tours just now, but there are about a hundred or so on offer right now in all sorts of places and on all sorts of subjects. Why not begin your tour by having a look for yourself by visiting www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or by giving their friendly team a call on 01223 841 055. Let's get into the scenes. The first one is the 20th of September in 1066. We are going to Fulford, which is just south of York. In fact, today it's a suburb of York. Uh, it's just down the river Ouse from York. Uh, at this point, the Vikings have invaded. They've uh, fought their way down the coast. 
that if they've come up the Humber and they've actually ridden the tidal bore with their ships up the River Ouse, when the tide comes into the Humber, it actually turns the Ouse back on itself and the river flows upstream. Mm -hmm. They caught the current, rode their ships up on the uh, on the incoming tide, come to within a couple of miles of York. And uh, by uh, September 20th, they've gotten off their ships and marched up to Fulford, which is a, a choke point uh, where the river swings in close to a to a marsh. And the only way through is this narrow passage between the two. Uh, and as they get there, they find out that the Northern Earl, this is Harold and Tostig now together marching. Harold has uh, his Norwegian army and Tostig has his basically a band of English cutthroats and mercenaries backing him up. They come to Fulford. And they find Edwin of Mercia and Morkir of Northumbria blocking this narrow choke point with a shield wall. And the only way for them to get through is, a, is to, they can't go around it through the river. They can't go around it through the swamp. They have to go straight at it. And the, uh, the Northumbrians have set their position on the side of a, of a ditch, the bank of a ditch that runs between the marsh and the river. So the Vikings and the English have to run through this ditch and go slip sliding up the other side. And that's where they're meeting nothing but a wall of shields with spears and axes sticking out mm. of it. And uh, that's the that's the Battle of Fulford. That's how so, it starts. I mean, I'm going to quote a bit of your own writing back at you, which I, th I thought was really revealing. You say, these days when men kill each other from ever increasing distance, there's no modern equivalent to ancient shield war welfare, uh, warfare, sorry, certainly not welfare, warfare. Uh, <laughs> a few people today, uh, just mostly athletes, professional ball players, fighters, have experienced an adult man slamming into them at full speed, and none of them with an edged weapon and the determination to use it. So, what you're saying essentially is this is a completely alien concept to most of us today when we read about these things. But the idea, I suppose, of the the kind of kinetic energy which is involved in these things, people slamming into walls. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the shield wall, but also about the kind of weapons that were being used at that time? Where had we got to in warfare and technology? Sure. Well, the shield wall was basically impervious to cavalry. The whole point of it was that you've got these shields and the men behind it are sticking spears out through the gaps in the shields. Horses will not throw themselves on a, on a hedge of spears. They're smart enough not to do that. So right away, cavalry cannot, cannot break a shield wall. And for infantry, the only way to break it is to basically just go up and engage with it, try to reach with your sword over and try to hit the guy behind it, even as he's trying to reach over with his sword and hit you on the other side of it. So you've got the spears, you've got the swords, and you've got the Dane axe on both sides. The Dane axe is the, the two-handed axe as tall as a man, just a murderous weapon. A, a guy who is skilled with that can split a man in two, basically behead a horse. I mean, it's illustrated on the Bayou Tapestry of knights beheading horses with these things. Uh, just a fearsome weapon. And both sides used them because the Northumbrians, again, were, you know, they had Viking ancestry. They were all familiar with it. So you, that's the kind of weapons we're dealing with. Here. So again, are we before like archers and things like this became a big feature? So it's very close quarters, the fighting. Is that what I'm trying to emphasize? I suppose? Sure. You do have archers, but the tradition of archery that England later acquired, it did not yet have at this mm -hmm. point. Uh, longbows were in existence 
but England hadn't really developed a tradition of archery. I think uh, it was it was a poor man's weapon for one thing. Swords were fantastically expensive. Uh, you know, spears were the more common common weapon for the common man. Archery also required a lot of training to be able to use a bow. Uh, is not something that you can just pick up and start doing. So England had not yet acquired that tradition. The the Welsh may have brought it in. The Welsh longbow may have. Uh, revived English interest in it. And I think the Normans who had a, who had a bit of a history with that might have done it as well. Um, one more thing just to stress to mm -hmm. at Fulford is that Harold Hardrada by this point has been involved in, I think you say 80 battles or something of that order. This for him is what he does. This is what he's good at. So are you going to tell us what he does on that day, which shows him as the Vikings Viking. He knows when he's going up this shield against this shield wall, there's only three ways to break it. That that's the only way you can do it. You can either go at it head on, as he's been doing basically all day at this point, getting nowhere. You can outflank it, try to go around it, which is impossible at this point because there's river on one side and a marsh on the other side. Can't go around it. The only other way to do it is to do a head fake and make make the enemy think that you're retreating because in those days, you know, you've been sweating and fighting and swinging swords and you've seen your friends get killed and you're still surviving. When you see the enemy turn tail and run, it's just an overwhelming urge to go finish this off. Let's let's kill them, get them out of here. Let's chase after them. But the minute you do that, the shield wall is broken. And Tostig's men were towards the swamp at Fulford. They were the ones who turned tail and ran, whether they planned it that way or whether Harold expected them to turn and run. Uh, you know, nobody knows. But the Northumbrians who were on that side of the line broke their shield wall. They ran down into the ditch and, and chased after these uh, fleeing English, Tostig's English. Harold, from his perspective, overwards the river, sees that the shield wall is broken. Now he can outflank it. Now he sends his men into the gap. Now you have Vikings with two-handed axes and swords behind the Northumbrians and going around the Mercians to get behind them as well. And once you're behind a shield wall, you have nobody, all the, all the hardened fighting men with the armor are up in the front line. They're there with their shields. The guys in the back are basically the peasants who are back there with hay forks and uh, wood hatchets and stuff like that. And you get a bunch of Vikings piling into them and the battle's over at that point. So the Northumbrians were completely cut off and that army was basically destroyed on the field. The Mercians who were towards the river with the Vikings coming around the other side of them, they had to they had to retreat. Their line had to bend back towards the river or be driven into the river or make a run for it and try to escape to York, which is what a lot of them did at that point. So the battle was basically won that way. So it's it's a complete tactical victory for Harold. And and it seems, I suppose a very, very important preliminary stage in the conquest of England. Is that right? Right, right. He goes to York at this point, which is the capital of, of Northumbria, faced with a, a choice of being, you know, of surrendering and being treated well or trying to fight and, you know, being defeated again. Uh, the town fathers decide they have too much to lose and they just, they just surrender the city because Harold wants the city intact. He wants use that as a base of operations for his subsequent conquest of the of the south 
So that's what he and Tostig are planning. They want to set that up as their capital. And uh, to do that, they tell the citizens of York, uh, we're going to leave 150 of our guys inside the walls. Uh, you can call them hostages. We're going to call them a garrison. But you give us 150 citizens uh, as hostages to ensure your good behavior. Tostig, of course, he knows most of the leading citizens at this point. So he picks out some hostages and the rest of the countryside is to assemble their hostages and uh, bring them to a place called Stamford Bridge. Uh, the Battle of Fulford was fought on a Wednesday. Uh, they're supposed to meet at Stamford Bridge the following Monday. So this is all really showing Harold Hardrider at his absolute best. There's a point you make in the book, which I think is quite a, a neat one in a way for for us historians, because you point out how York, in a sense, becomes Jorvik again during this very short space of time. The conquest is underway, right. the reestablishment of the Dane law right. and the idea of Viking England, again, must have seemed very real. You have a almost um, a passage where you... You kind of take breath after the battle. This is early on in the book, and um, and imagine what must have been happening down there because they do go back to the base, like kind of on on the river, don't they? And then mm-hmm. right. and then we move on to the events which are going to happen in your second scene. So should we go? Should right. we go straight there because we've got a bit <laughs> of territory to cover. Let's go to your second scene. We're we're only a few days later. This is the twenty fifth of September. And now we're back at Stamford Bridge. What happens at Stamford Bridge? Well, the Vikings are feeling pretty, pretty confident at this point. I mean, the North is completely subdued. King Harold Godwinson, the English Harold, is down in the South, uh, you know, still awaiting this Norman invasion. So they've got the run of the country at this point. So on Monday morning, they all make about a 15-mile march from where their fleet is beached on the river to Stamford Bridge, which is east of York. Uh, takes them till midday or so to get there. Uh, they uh, they arrive. Harold and Tostig actually go across the bridge, which is, uh, even at this point, I think the current bridge was built in the 1800s, and it's still only one lane. You have to have stoplights at each point. And the bridge that existed back then was basically just a footbridge wide enough for, you know, one man or a cart or something like that. So they go across the bridge to do a little scouting on that side, and they see a cloud of dust coming uh, over a rise in the distance. And Harold Hardrada turns to Tostig and what is this? That's a lot of people coming. We we weren't looking for that. And Tostig says, oh, they're just bringing the hostages well, as the as the dust storm clears and the uh, the oncoming people top the rise, they see that it's actually the English army that uh, King Harold Godwinson has marched in less than a week, two hundred some miles from the south, marched the whole way up here to defeat them. A forced march, in my opinion, one of the uh, uh, greatest feats of medieval tactics and warfare ever done. Uh, they The Vikings were just caught completely flat-footed. They had left actually a third of their men back at the ships and all their armor. They didn't wear their armor because it was a hot day and they weren't expecting a fight. So here they are, down a third of their men, no armor, facing the entire English army. And uh, that's basically the setup for the battle. Uh, I mean, you talk about this great feat of... Um endurance to get so many men from one part of England to another. But there's um, something that I want to really get to because it's just um, astonishing in the book is this 
this exchange which happens, which I think you call one of the greatest um, conversations almost in English history. And I think you've got a fair argument for that. And you do recreate it in the book almost in it's so close. You can feel you can feel the conversations that happen. Do you want to tell us about this conversation I'm alluding to? I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I absolutely know what you're talking about. Yeah. Which is a prelude to the battle that follows. Right. The English army approaches. The typical way to do things is for the leaders to to, you know, sort of meet and see if there's any way to avoid a fight or, you know, intimidate one side into leaving. Harold Hardrada, he's never been to England before this, probably doesn't speak old English. So he goes back across the bridge to get his get his troops together, get them uh, into a shield wall because he knows there's going to be a fight coming. Tostig stays on the Eng on the side where the English army is, and his brother Harold comes up to him, rides up to him. And, you know, they basically try to decide terms. Is there some way we can avoid this fight? And Harold Godwinson offers, Tostig just gradually steps up and offer, you know, I'll give you a fifth of the kingdom if you'll call this off. And Tostig's like, no, can't do that. And Harold says, I'll give you a third if you'll call it off. And at this point, Tostig is like, you know, if you had done this last year when you exiled me, we wouldn't be in this predicament right now. And I can't do it. I've already I've already chosen my side in this. And Harold says, I will give you half the kingdom if you will call this battle off. And Tostig says, I'm locked into this. Even if I agree, what would Harold Hadrada get out of this? I, you know, he's backed me up on this. And Harold Godwinson says, I'll give Harold Hadrada seven feet of ground or maybe a little more since he's taller than most men. And Tostig says, I can't, I can't do it. Uh, he won't accept those terms. We're going to have to fight. So Harold says, then this is on your head. We're going to have to do it. If you get killed, that's not my fault. So they ride back and the battle commences. <laughs> Stamford Bridge obviously is one of the great battles in English history. I think there's quite a lot of depictions of it in art. It's this confused, visceral scene of complete carnage. In a way, I suppose we can describe it as an inversion of the battle which came before, because instead of being having the element of surprise and being the offensive force, Harold Hardrada is now on the defensive, right. because the English um, Anglo-Saxon army is bigger, isn't it? Yes, it is. His, uh, his goal is to have a shield wall, but he has to survive until his they immediately the Vikings immediately send three three riders on their three fastest horses to ride back to the fleet and fetch everybody to come up as reinforcements. But they have to survive until the reinforcements get there. Now they hold the bridge. That's the key thing at this point. The Vikings hold the bridge. The English have to cross the bridge to get to them. And uh, the bridge again is a very narrow bridge. It's just a footbridge. You can't leave a you know a sizable force there because they'll just be tripping over each other. So a handful of the Vikings basically form a little miniature shield wall at the English side of the bridge and have to hold the bridge. And of course they they don't hold it very long. They're they're killed one by one until legend has it, and it's all English legend. It's notably not Scandinavian legend that one Viking with a Dane axe held the bridge by himself, killing 40 English, you know, with an axe. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty gruesome sight right there. And held it even though they called on him and said, we'll give you a quarter if you surrender. And he was like, eh, 
bring it on. <laughs> and they uh, they eventually had to bear off. They couldn't take him. And according to different legends, either he was boasting and somebody hit him with a javelin or the more popular story is that uh, some English went underneath the bridge in a boat and stuck a spear up under the bridge through a gap in the planking and stabbed him up under his male armor. Mm, so wow. the English, the English come across the bridge now at this point, uh, at this point, the Scandinavians, the, the Norwegians are up on a, a, a little bit of rising ground called Battle Flats. Uh, and again, they have formed a shield wall. Now, Harold Godwinson is trying something a little different here. He's had this experience with uh, the Normans. The Normans use cavalry a good bit, and he is going to try and use cavalry against this shield wall. Now, as I've said, cavalry is pretty ineffective against a shield wall because of the spears sticking out. But if the cavalry can ride around the shield wall quick enough, they can attack from the rear. So that's his first tactic. But Harold Hardrada is way ahead of him. He bends the shield wall back in a complete circle with Tostig and Harold Hardrada in the center. So now you've got a circular shield wall with the cavalry riding around it, finding no way to get in. And uh, basically, Harold Godwinson, the English king, has to send his infantry up to just try and hack their way into this uh, shield wall, which they don't do. They can't do it, but they fake a retreat. And Harold Hadrano must have been pulling his hair out because his Norwegians broke their shield wall and chased after the English. And as soon as they did that, the English riders came in behind them, cut off the guys who had come down the hill, and the shield wall is open so they can mm -hmm. attack. And at this point, the, the Viking reinforcements haven't arrived, and Harold Hadrano knows that this is going to be the end of it. It's, it's, he, he's going to die here. It is, and it's, it's a story which for all its distance in the past, still comes down to this like kind of element of human psychology. And once you lose discipline in a military formation like that, mm. you're you're really in a bad place, aren't you? And it seems, as I said before, it is, of course, a complete inversion of what happened just a few days earlier. But I want, because he's the hero of your book, or anti-hero, however you want to describe him, <laughs> um, he let, let's have a look at Harold Hardrada because he was this famed warrior. What do we know if we're going to kind of catch if we were there and we were to kind of have a glance a glance across at him as he was entering this final minutes of his life? Was he a tall man? Do you know what kind of shield he held? What was his insignia? What kind of weapon would Harold Hardrada have been um, fighting with himself? Do we know any of these answers? Answers to any of these questions, or is it very specific? He was said to be extremely tall for a man of his age. They they measured it out at uh, Snorri Sturluson, called him five L's tall. An L was a Viking measurement, basically about 18 inches, which would have made Harold, what, seven and a half feet yeah. tall or something like that. So mm -hmm. probably an exaggeration, but uh, he was renowned for being a very tall man of his age. He would have been recognized because of his, uh, his flag. It was a raven, a black raven on white silk which was a historic Viking uh, insignia from back in the pagan days, symbolized Odin's ravens who uh, uh, were a symbol of Odin. And uh, that was flying over Harold Hadrada at both Fulford and Stamford Bridge. And Harold was also noted uh, at Fulford because Harold had a uh, full suit of armor, uh, body length armor, male armor that he called, he had named it Emma. <laughs> it was his favorite suit of armor, but he did not have it at Stanford Bridge because they had all left their armor on the ships back at the fleet. 
So yeah, he would have been easy to pick out by standing under his Raven banner. And uh, ultimately, I think that was his downfall because uh, you talked about archery a little while ago. The English did have some archers at this fight. Archery was not the predominant form of battle that it would be for the English against the French, you know, in the uh, Hundred Years' War. But they did have archers. And as uh, the battle was falling apart, Harold Hadrada is said to have just taken his sword and just waded into the English and started cutting them up and so terrified them, according to legend, that, you know, there was a chance that he was going to personally turn things around. But uh, the uh, an English archer hit him in the throat with uh, with an arrow and that pretty much fixed his business. Wow. It's quite an end and maybe the end that might have been expected given the kind of life that he led, I suppose. Well, I think he did have a he did have a good line when he went down. He was basically bleeding out from the throat where he had been hit and Tostig came over to him and said, you know, are you OK? And Harold said, basically, no, I'm not. And he said, uh, advised Tostig to come to terms with his brother, Harold and uh, Harold Hadrada said, tell the English king, I'll take the take the seven feet of ground that he offered me this morning. <laughs> and, and that's how he died. Those were basically his last words. Wow, there you go. Boy, I'm that, giving away the whole book here. <laughs> no, no, there's more in there. There's more in there. Plenty more. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all this is very cinematic in a way, isn't it? We often say this um, when we're describing our scenes, but there is something about this, the sheer number of people, the unexpected arrival of a different army. Um, mm-hmm. I, I suppose that the tragic element of the miscalculation and what the, the biggest thing here is, I mean, we're talking about interactions between people in the field of battle but there's so much at stake here and mm-hmm. we're going to continue the story um to the, the date which i suppose in a way is um so formative for england and the world beyond um which is as the saturday the, the 14th of october 1066 yeah. um some bells should be going off in, in various uh, people's minds at the moment. But <laughs> we've seen two battles, but let's go to the really, really big one. I don't know. Should we stand on Senlac Hill and have a look at it? What would be what would we be seeing if we were looking over the Battle of Hastings? Well, at this point, Harold. A couple of days before, Harold was up in the up in the north in York when he actually heard that Duke William. Uh, had crossed the channel after all. Uh, after all, the entire summer, it got to the end of September and the Normans hadn't come. And by that point, it's, it's starting to turn into winter. And Harold knows that the Normans are poor sailors. They're not going to try it again until next year. And by that time, William might not have the manpower. Most of his men will say, this is never going to happen. Then they're going to desert. So uh, that's why Harold marched his men north to take on the Vikings at Stamford Bridge. Now, all of a sudden, Harold is caught off guard again before he was in the south when the attack came in the north. Now he's in the north and the attack comes in the south. So uh, uh, Duke William uh, takes his time, does not does not immediately strike for London. He's trying to set up a base of operations on the coast. He uh, uh, wants to take Dover and some of the surrounding territory down there in the south coast. And this gives uh, Harold Godwinson time to make another forced march uh, back down to the south. Uh, both of these times, they think, of is uh, so fast that he did not he did not have a time to call the army to him and then march either direction. He basically sent riders out and said, "I'm heading either north or south. Meet me at such a point and be ready for battle." So Harold Godwinson did arrive in London before the Normans attacked. He marched. 
uh, against advice, he marched towards marched southeast towards Hastings to try and block uh, Duke William's progress out of there. Because although the English seacoast there is basically one long stretch of beach at this point, back then it was completely different. It was uh, little tidal inlets and peninsulas, and Hastings was actually uh, at the end of a peninsula. And Harold's Harold's thought was if he could keep Duke William pinned on that peninsula and send his fleet around and cut him off from the rear. He could just let the the Normans starve uh, and, you know, perish over the winter. So he basically marches his army up to Senlac Ridge uh, and uh, and waits. And Duke William hears that he's coming. And it's to Duke William's advantage to not be pinned on that peninsula. So he wants an immediate battle. He comes out to uh, to fight the English at, at Senlac. What kind of size are these armies now? We, we're talking, I in my um understanding around the 10,000 mark is a big army and sometimes they've been a little smaller a little bigger is that around right. the kind of size we're that's thinking a good of ballpark again? this is another one where you know none of the none of the original chroniclers they either they give uh, wildly inflated accounts i think it's orderic vitalis has uh, one of his guys say that harold has 1.2 million men in his army and that's just he's trying to bluff harold or duke william at that point and uh, no Nobody has an army that size. Uh, they think both of them, 10,000 is a good round figure, could have been less, could have been a little bit more. The big difference between the armies is that uh, Harold Godwinson's army is composed of foot soldiers, uh, house carls, which are basically his, his bodyguard troops, the elite troops, but they're all on foot. They fight the way the Vikings fought, which is you can ride a horse to battle, but you fight on foot. You don't, you don't ride into battle. And Harold had already seen his, uh, you know, his little experiment with cavalry at Stamford Bridge. He had seen that fail, and his he was going to do uh, basically what the Northern Earls had done, which is get some advantageous ground, stretch his shield wall across it. There were supposedly ravines on either side of this at this point uh, that the that the Normans could not march around. So he was basically trying to do to Duke William what the uh, Northern Earls had tried to do to Harold uh, Hadrada up in the north. The um, the the shield itself is such an important part of this story. I'm going to have to ask you what might seem a very simple question, but it's one that um, I'd like you to clarify. Which is, are we thinking of these little round shields, or are they the big teardrop ones of the kind of crusading era that we think of, or would they be a mix of all sorts of different things? I think it would be a mix of both. I mean, the, by far the most that you see on the bio tapestry are the what they call kite shields. I can never figure out. That's not what a kite looks like. It's, it looks like a teardrop to me. I don't yeah. know why they call them kite shields, but that's the predominant kind that you see in the bio tapestry. Uh, but you do see round shields on there. And a lot of these people from the north of England and uh, a lot of the mercenaries in Duke William's army may have carried round shields. The, the kite shield kind of adapted for cavalry use because a, a man on uh, on a horse has an exposed leg on the shield side. So the kite shield has this taper that goes down and tries to cover that leg on that side. Oh, that's a really interesting detail. And I suppose it comes back to the reenactment again, that you know these things. And and I suppose you'll have an insight into what kind of upper body strength you need to actually maintain the, uh, <laughs> you know, the authenticity. I'm not sure what the right word is. Just to right. keep it all in place. I tell you, these guys were athletes. I mean, I have a couple of uh, a couple of sets of armor, and 
as a reenactor, you can get armor that's basically for show. Uh, it's a lot lighter. It won't take a blow very well, but I have a, uh, I have a suit of mail. I've, I've worn it. I've never actually measured how heavy it is off top of my head. Say, I'd guess 30 pounds, something like that. When you put that on, you can feel your vertebrae compress. <laughs> it, it is mm. heavy. And for these guys to go out and wear that and carry a shield, carry a sword, wear the helmet, and then fight all day at the end of a march. Uh, these guys were like whipcord leather. I mean, they were just, they were tough as hell. Yeah, they really were. And it shows what, in a way, we're capable of. And, and I suppose we sit around in front of computers all day nowadays, but a thousand years ago, <laughs> marching from this side of the country to another side of the country, no Fitbits. They were just they were just getting on with it. What, what role did the, the shield wall play at the Battle of Hastings? Was it important again? It was. Uh, you find all three of these battles, you find a shield wall, and all three of them were impervious as long as they stayed together. As long as they stayed together. That was the that was the downfall of all of them. Duke William sends his men up. He even sends archers ahead as the first wave. His, his goal was uh, like fighting a, a modern battle. He want to soften the enemy up with artillery, like arrows. Then you want to send in the infantry to break the line, and then you want to send the cavalry in to run down the, the straggling survivors. But the Normans are fighting uphill, and they find that their their arrows are either hitting the shield wall doing nothing or passing completely over the shield wall, which means uphill over the heads of the of the of the guys behind the shield wall. So the archery is not accomplishing anything. Uh, William sends his infantry up. Uh, he has basically three ranks. He has uh, some men from Brittany on his left and some Frenchmen on his right and his Normans in the center. They all go up and try to engage. And the Britons on the left break and retreat. And nobody knows if this was by plan or if they really just had enough and ran down the hill. But the English right wing facing them chased after them, abandoned the shield wall and chased after them, went down, uh, ran them into a... There's there's two versions of the story. There was kind of a swampy bottom at the at the bottom of the hill, and a lot of the cavalrymen got mired down in that, and the English fell on them and were fighting them there. And there was a rumor that ran ran through the army. Uh, oh, we're losing, we're losing. Somebody said the Duke has been killed. We need to get out of here. And Duke William plunged into the battle and stood up in his stirrups and tipped his his uh, helmet back and said, "I am still alive, and by God's grace, we're still going to win." follow me. And uh, he sent sent the cavalry up behind, up the hill and behind the English that had come down and wiped them out again. So now the English army has been cut into two thirds of the original size. They're still across the hill, but they have to space their shield wall out to avoid being flanked. And apparently the Normans may have actually faked a, a retreat a second time on the right and again, the English chased after them. There's there's no way to get around that it must have just been a compulsion to chase after these guys when you saw them retreating. That in all three of these battles, these are hardened warriors that have fought here before. And when you see the enemy run, you just have to chase them. You don't you don't stand in a line. So yeah. now the English army is uh, is wide open on both flanks, and the uh, the Norman cavalry can get around them. It seems almost like a um a version of what they talk about in mountaineering is as summit fever. When people think they're at the top, they they start losing their composure and they'll do silly things. Right. Like they'll take risks, and that 
that very simple bit of human psychology, probably just to want it over. You're just exhausted. Mm-hmm. You just you you feel like you can't tolerate this anymore, and you've got a chance to finish it. And right, in there right. lies the the, the the great problem because you the fatal weakness, the fatal weakness, right? Yeah, yeah, and this would be the Shakespearean point, wouldn't it? And it seems like it's just a repeating thing throughout all of these stories, echoing, echoing. It's the mm-hmm. the, the, the false retreat, the failure of the shield wall. The subsequent disaster, and that is that really what happens at Hastings again? Yeah, by all the accounts, uh, the English the English army fell for two faked retreats, and at this point, the Norman cavalry is able to get around behind them. Just as King Harold of Norway was standing under his raven banner, King Harold of England is standing under his personal banner, which is a fighting man. Uh, and the banner of Wessex, which is a wyvern, a two legged dragon, so they know right where he is. And uh, according to according to the legends, there's a couple ways that it happened. Again, there's a famous argument now that uh, Harold Godwinson was hit in the eye by an mm-hmm. arrow, which uh, wasn't recounted by anybody who actually witnessed the battle. So they think that's fake. The, the one that's pictured on the bio tapestry is actually an addition later on. They think that now they think that that guy was originally holding a spear, but uh, somebody it's been restored a couple of times and they think somebody took the spear out and put an arrow in his hand that's hitting him in the eye. And they think the scene after that, where there's a, a Norman knight cutting down an English ax man with his sword, they uh, they think that that's, that's actually representing Harold because there's an account that four knights rode in, supposedly including Duke William, that, you know, that the, the Normans around Harold stood off and said, this is Duke, Duke William's thing to solve. And that Duke William and three other men rode in and uh, basically cut him to pieces. Well, and there, in that moment, English history really did change, didn't it? it I did. mean, we can all draw so much back to, to that particular moment. Well, listen, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you the great knowledge you have the political the strategic the character driven Mm -hmm. part of it terrifying in one sense but compulsive in another to imagine (laughs) what the sight of it was like what the smells Mm -hmm. of it was like you know all of all of this but not just as you say the year of three battles it's really happens in such a short space of time doesn't it everything changes yeah it's really like the the month or six weeks of three battles it's everything happens right there in a couple of weeks in uh, september and october yeah well uh, was they often say about the battle of waterloo i think it was um wellington who said that it was a a a very close run thing so do you think the same can be applied to hastings when you look back at it yeah i think it can you know, again, if you if you take the sources at their word and, and the, you know, maybe Harold Godwinson was hit by an arrow and Harold Hadrada was hit by an arrow, there, there's a certain amount of chance there and really a big amount of chance in the fact that uh, Harold Godwinson marched his army north just days or maybe a week or so before Duke William came over and crossed the all summer he had been waiting and a couple of days after Harold abandons the coast. Duke William comes over and basically makes an unopposed landing. I mean, that's that's the greatest uh, coincidence to me, just the odd mm-hmm. stroke of luck there that the wind changed Absolutely. and the Normans were able to cross. 
I should ask you this one question as well. If anyone um, wasn't satisfied with our descriptions and they wanted to see any of these three battles for themselves, are they ever reenacted? These like Hastings or, or Fulford or Stamford Bridge? Do you know uh, in your knowledge? I believe that they are. I mean, I, I do all my reenacting over on this side of the pond, so I'm not sure I'm what you guys are doing over you there. Just, but if they're not reenacting them, they should be. <laughs> yeah, they should be. Well, anyway, write in, listeners, if you if you have any ideas um listen i've got one last question before i say thank you and um let you come back to 2023 if you would like a a tangible memento from the year 1066 i mean to put into this wonderful house of yours among alongside the armor and and all the rest of it is there anything particular that you would like if i gave you metaphorically the chance to take anything i would love to have either either harold hadrada's raven flag or Harold Godwinson's fighting man flag. I just, wow. uh, you know, those were, those were the, those were the things that these guys were fighting and dying for. I mean, just a, a symbol, a symbol of being a Viking and a symbol of uh, the heritage of Wessex. That, that, oh my goodness. I, if you yeah, had that, one of those, uh, I, I think I'd be, I'd be satisfied with that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You've got me thinking now what an object that would be. Well, it's a, it's a really nice way to bring this conversation, which I've enjoyed immensely um, to bring it to a close. Um, so the last Viking, who doesn't unfortunately make it through 1066, but plays a big <laughs> part in the events of the That's the horrible year. part about writing, uh, writing history. It's like, spoiler alert, yeah. everybody dies at the yeah. end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we, we do have the habit of doing that. But anyway, listen, it's been... Um, terrific pleasure to talk to you i enjoyed the book so much and i wish you all the very best for it thanks for coming on travels through time may i mention that uh, i have a deadline coming up on wednesday and my next book is uh, going to be wrapped up and actually tells the backstory of all three of these battles from basically uh, the year 10,001 the whole thing of the vikings and the normans and the anglo-saxons fighting over uh england it's called battle for the island kingdom it's available now for uh, uh pre-purchase on amazon uh and it's almost uh, kind of a prequel to the story of harold hadrada if you've if you like the show vikings valhalla but thought ooh, this is a little over dramatized <laughs> my book will tell you the real Brilliant. story listen so much fun Learned a lot, especially I know what to do now if I ever find myself in a shield um, wall, uh, that's for sure. Anyway, take take care. Thank you very Bring much. Bring a sword. <laughs> Thank you. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Don Holloway about his thoroughly engaging new book, The Last Viking, The True Story of King Harold Hardrada, which is available right now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, then it'd be hugely appreciated if you took the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Otherwise, that's it for this week. Till next time, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>